Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and pick your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. As a reminder, you can submit questions to our questions bot. It is available in the Geek Lab. You can visit the Geek Lab by pointing any web browser to geeklab.ninja. You can join. If you go to parachutelive.tv, you can participate without creating an account. We want to preserve your privacy. But if you join that chat, you can question, mention the questions bot, which is questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. Of course, you can do that from any matrix client as well, because we are federated. And that will place the question squarely inside or in the front of our faces. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome to the program, sir. Mr. Noah, how's your week been going so far? You know, it sounds like my week went better than your Friday did. <laughs> yeah, Friday was uh, quite the adventure, let me tell you, for, for all my home automation stuff. Okay, so I'm a person out there and I'm listening to the show and I say, Steve and Noah, you guys use Home Assistant, you love Home Assistant, I like home automation, but I'm going full open source. I'm using Zigbee for everything because that's the open source wireless standard. What would you say to that person? Have fun. Don't ask me if you have trouble. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I have had a long battle with Zigbee over the, uh, the last couple of years doing home automation and... I have had various Zigbee sticks and I've never really found it to be up to the standard that I, I have understood it to, to be, right? You read all these things that like, this is the way that people are going and it's an open standard. And I wrote a blog some time ago for opensauce.com about how I didn't think Zigbee was really the uh, one standard to rule them all because there's a lot of problems trying to intercommunicate between Zigbee devices and some other reasons. And uh, I have about two dozen Zigbee devices on my home assistant network here. And over the weekend, I decided I was going to migrate my VM from one host to another because I upgraded my VM host. So, oh, that should be no problem, right? The migration went fine. I, I keep backups. I have tons of backups. I have all my home assistant backups going out all the way to January. So I wasn't really worried about that. I migrated over and none of the Zigbee stuff is available. Well, what's going on here? So I start, I'm like, okay, well, was this because the stick migrated to a different physical host? And so I'm, I'm rooting around and trying to figure out like, is, is this a problem with my new host? Because it's being, pat like this is a USB device that gets passed in to the VM and I'm, I'm doing this level of troubleshooting and not getting anywhere. So throughout the time that I've had Zigbee, I've had multiple sticks and I've kept them all. And for one reason or another, I've just like decommissioned them. So I start digging out these different sticks that I've got and I, you know, change the stick. And anybody who's who knows anything about Zigbee is, the devices are paired to the stick and not to Home Assistant. So if you change the stick, you have to repair everything inside of Home Assistant in order for it to be able to control them again. So 
I go through this process of, of, you know, doing this repairing and you'll say, well, why didn't you just repair a couple of devices? And the answer to that is it was random as to which devices were going wonky at the time. So for example, I have door sensors and I've got motion sensors. I walk into my kitchen, the lights come on and, and that's what I expect. But then I open the, the closet door and the lights don't come on there with the door sensor. And so doing all this level of troubleshooting, I spent all of Friday attempting to track down what essentially turned out to be an issue with the home assistant between October and November, or sorry, September and October's updates. So even though I do my, my home assistant updates and I restart core, I hadn't restarted the VM. And apparently restarting the VM triggered this bug that essentially made Zigbee go offline or be completely unreliable. Like you'd pair the device and it would look like it would work fine. And then I would change its name to the device that I expected it to be in my automations and it would stop working. And so I, I spent all of this time running around doing repairing and cursing at Zigbee the entire time because my Z-Wave stuff worked flawlessly as did all of the homemade sensors that I built. And, you know, I was, I was inches away from just replacing all two dozen devices with Z-Wave stuff. I had them all in my Amazon cart and, you know, 15 hours in, I find a thread on the home assistant forums with one person who had said like, yeah, so there's a few of us that, that rolled back to the September update and that fixed everything. So that was Friday. I'm sorry to hear that, but I think th th I, the reason I, I was kind of pushing you for that story is because I think it underscores a really important point. When I first got into home automation, one of the things I was shying away from at the time was X10 because I tried X10 and it about drove my wife out, uh, up the wall because it functioned better as a bad science project than it did as a, a home automation control system. And I have since switched over to, to, to Lutron for my lights. And while Lutron is not an open source uh, system, it is fairly easy to integrate with other things. And most importantly, it works all the time. And so I, I guess my plea for us as a community is when we go to push open source standards and when we go to plug in and, and, and promote these things, we need to make sure that we don't act like ostriches with our head in the sand. Because if you're Steve and you have a fairly solid ground in open source to begin with, I mean, like you work with it every day, right, Steve? It's it's not going to deter you from open source. It just deters you from that one single project. But I think that you have enough of those experiences and it starts to make somebody look over and be like, how are they doing it that way? I'll just go use the proprietary one. That's going to work better. And, and I think that gives open source a bad name. I think we do more harm than good. In our feedback. To be fair, mm -hmm. just, just as a last addendum, to be fair, I don't think that this was specifically an issue with Zigbee since it was fixed with reverting to home assistant, but it was, it was the frustration. It's that old adage when we say, oh, well, it's not Linux's fault that games don't work, or it's not Linux's fault that this thing doesn't work because they didn't produce the drivers at the end of, at the end of the day, from the end user's perspective, my Z-Wave stuff worked just fine. It mm -hmm. was, it was Zigbee that caused my problems. And, and I, I have a history of, of stubbing my toe on this. So yeah, I, was gonna I say, don't it think it's the Zigbee protocol as much as there, there's some problem with the interface with the software yeah and, and again it's not this isn't the first issue you've had it's not the first issue that i've had and we've had discussions on some other design choices are, are not ideal but so just in general just kind of have your eye on 
what the competition has to offer and how we can be competitive in the open source sphere. Our first email comes in from Jackson. Jackson writes in and says, Hi Noah, I'm a 23-year-old longtime listener of the show with a passion for Linux, free software, and technology in general. I'm big into self-hosting and experimenting with enterprise-grade technologies. I currently work as an electrician, but have some background in customer relations. Recently, a few of my friends uh, with similar interests, some who work in technology, and I have tentatively been discussing the idea of launching some sort of technology services business. I've given, given this a lot of thought because the idea of running my own business has always been a goal of mine, which particularly why I chose to become an electrician. There's a well-established path for people who want to work in the construction trades to eventually run their own shops. While I by no means hate my current line of work, you can probably guess that I would be much more interested in going to the IT business. The skill set of my friends and I is fairly diverse, ranging from systems administration to software development to cabling, physical security. If I were to launch an IT services business, we would probably focus on small to medium-sized business clients and would identify some sort of niche. My question for you is this. As someone who runs a technology business of their own, what are, in your opinion, the most common IT problems or concerns businesses will face or are currently facing or going to face in the near future? What kind of strategies and technologies and practices do you think are most suited to addressing them? Thanks for putting this on the show. As always, lots of great tips, tricks, news, and insightful discussions to be found every week. And I'm very appreciative. Regards, Jackson. So I'm going to answer your email backwards, Jackson. I'm going to start with um, what's going on into the future. So this is something that I keep my finger on the pulse of. And I meet with a, a, a close set of, of very trusted advisors that have I've worked with either for a long time or in some way have developed a, a very strong trust. And we meet a couple of times a year and we brainstorm about the direction of where our industry is going. And the reason for that is because at UltaSpeed, we always are trying to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. If you do that in technology, you're falling behind. And so as part of that, I'll give you an example. Our last brainstorming session, actually like the last two or three, one of the, one of the, one of the, um, trends that we've been tracking and discussing is this move towards cloud technology. And so five years ago, when you walked into a business, the business probably had a server. They probably had a router. They probably had a switch. They probably had access points. They probably had computers. And over time, what has happened is the server infrastructure, which accounted for a pretty drastic amount of the amount of time that we spent on site for a client fixing their server or administrating their server or updating or, you know, fixing crashes, those kinds of things. That part of the business has scaled down uh, considerably in the IT industry. And what it's been replaced with is more network access devices. So tablets and more computers and better access points and those kinds of things. And what the businesses are doing is they're moving off of on-premise hosted servers and moving towards cloud-based servers. Now, many of these decisions are not intentional choices by the business, but they, because by the nature of them being franchises of whatever the larger industry is, uh, their brand chooses something and then says, here's what we're going to. We're moving to the cloud. And so here's how you access the cloud, right? And that, you know, as a business owner, you're always looking for 
the next way to serve individuals. And so we don't look at that and throw our hands up and go, wow, we did servers yesterday and now they don't use servers anymore. So I guess we go out of this. That's not what you do, right? You look at that and say, okay, so now our client needs have moved. They've moved from on-premise hosting over to internet access. So how do we do that the best we can? Um, and, 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 and so we evolved. Now, the reason I bring that up and the reason that I, I, I tell you that is because if you're looking to, uh, to specialize in a niche or you want to look into the near future, what kind of strategies and technologies and practices are we looking at? Well, what we're looking at is how can you become either the people that facilitate the connection from the client endpoint up to the cloud service or, and this is what we're evaluating, how do we become the cloud provider? Because I believe, and if you listen to the show, you probably believe too, that we best serve our clients and we best serve the people that give us money in exchange for technology and information when we let them own their infrastructure. Now, to the extent that they're not interested in maintaining their infrastructure, that's no problem. You buy the server, I will come maintain it. You don't want to buy the server, I will rent you a server that I will maintain for you but I'll always give you the option of moving that in-house. So you get the best of both worlds. If you just want to, if you want to stick your head in the sand and say, I want cloud. Okay, that's fine. I will provide you cloud. And when you want to move from cloud into understanding that really that's just someone else's computer and you'd rather that reside in your, uh, on your premise, well, that's no problem. We have a plan for that because we intended to serve you the entire time. That was just the best way that we could do it. So, so that's how we track those trends. And, and so that's what I would encourage you to do. Look very carefully at containers. Look very carefully at Kubernetes. Look very carefully at things like Ansible, because those are the ways, those are the technologies that exist right here in Linux land that are going to be, to, well, it's really, it's today's uh, technology, but it's today's and very much tomorrow's technology and the way that, the average day folk are going to access their resources is through those kinds of managed hosted services. No managed hosted services are going to be running on container technology. So I would have a firm grasp in that. Now, working back uh, to your email, what you're really asking is, hey, I have this goal of owning my own business. Right now I'm an electrician. And you said there's a well-established path for people that work in the construction trade. So, you know, if you wanted to go on to be a master electrician, you understand that process. But you could very easily divert and say, okay, I'm an electrician. I know how to snake wires all over the place. I'm comfortable with commercial construction because I've done a ton of it as an electrician. Now I'm going to go pull wire, but instead of pulling uh, Romex, I'm going to go pull Cat6 and I'm going to go pull RG6. And then I'm going to connect endpoints to uh, that those RG6. And I'll learn because I'm a nerd and I like exploring these things. My friends and I, We'll go and look at the enterprise grade technology cameras and access points and those kinds of things. And we'll learn about those and we'll install those for you. Now, the actual process I would go about doing that, I would highly suggest you start at the very end of the network and work your way towards the center. The closer you get to the center, the more complicated it gets. So, for example, start by things like printers or uh, barcode scanners. Anything that's attached to a computer is going to be of little consequence if you screw it up. If something goes wrong, there's little consequence when it's a thing hanging off of a thing. Once you get into the computer itself, now that person is down, but at least the rest of the network's up. Once you get to the switch, now everybody that's on that switch is down. Once you get to the gateway, now everyone on that network segment is down or multiple network segments is down. So the closer you get to the center of the network, the higher the consequence, the higher the complexity, the more skill that you'll want to have under your belt. Um, staying out at the endpoints is going to be the safer way. So 
when you're looking at how do I make the move from being an electrician to being an IT business owner, that's what I would suggest. Start by what you know, which is pulling wire, move towards the endpoints that you've connected to your wires that you've put in. So it's not really screwing anything up that they already have. And then as you become more comfortable, work your way to the inside. Hope that helps. If it doesn't, please reach out again via email. We'd love to help. Our second email comes in from Matthew. Matthew writes in and says, hi, all. I'm starting some research on security keys for personal and home lab use. YubiKey has to be one of the most popular keys by far. However, there's also open source keys such as SoloKey, NitroKey, and OnlyKey. I've given up my pursuit of being an open source purist. I still prefer to go that route when it's reasonably feasible to do so. Do you have any suggestions on open source security keys, or is this a case where you're better to go with the tried and true option? Thank you, and keep up the show. Matthew. So I have tried some of these open source uh, keys. I've tried the nitro key and I've tried only key. I've not, I don't think I've tried the solo key, but um, what I have found is either I'm not very impressed by the build quality or it's missing some feature that I like having or, or have grown accustomed to having. Um, and so for those reasons, I continually just come back to the YubiKey. And we have YubiKeys deployed company-wide. We've never had any issue with them. Um, oh, by the way, they're what Google is using for their uh, for their standards. So I would, I would highly encourage you to start at YubiKey and move off of it if there's a good reason to do so. Steve, do you have any experience with uh, with hardware keys? Are you still doing just um, two-factor on your with a with an app? So I have some experience, um, but I haven't tried any of the open source ones. I would say though, this is an area where pragmatism should be considered a higher virtue than open source because you're talking about um, extra security and what things it may integrate with, right? So for example, does your password manager support it? Does SSH support it? Like ultimately you're trying to use this as a second step authentication and if the things you're trying to authenticate against don't support it, then your open source um, patronage won't actually provide you the value that you're trying to achieve. So what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to uh, bump up? It's the same thing we were talking about with the laptops. Are you trying to back a company because of their open source values or are you trying to add to your security posture? If you're adding your to your security posture, you have to consider which ones are going to suit your needs the best. And, and that's, I would fall down kind of on the YubiKey as well, just because it is the, it is the one that has the support for most of the things that you're going to try to add second factor authentication for. Two bit in the chat room asks, what would be a good inexpensive SDR to find radio interference on wireless microphones. So a bit of expansion there, wireless microphones connect, they're a small transmitter built into wireless microphones and then there is a receiver and they talk back and forth. Now, if you get multiple wireless microphones or if you get a micro, uh, wireless microphone system that has a frequency range that overlaps with some other existing equipment in the building, then you have interference and a problem. So what the, the, the only SDR that I have any experience with, so it's the one I'm gonna recommend to you, um, is the RTL SDR, um, and they are $28 on Amazon with, uh, with free shipping. And what I like about them is they work flawlessly inside of Linux. They're brain dead simple to set up 
and uh, they have a wide frequency range. So I'd have to know specifically which microphones uh, you were using uh, to tell you for sure that this will work, but it works with everything from 500 kilohertz to, uh, I think it goes up to 3.2 megahertz. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it's fairly, it's fairly wide. Um, but again, depending on, on what you're using. And then the other side of that is if you're using digital microphones, um, that changes a little bit, you'll still be able to see if there's noise on the frequency, but with Shure's new digital microphones, even when there is noise on the frequency, they, they do pretty well. Um, so just kind of depends. Our third email comes in from Cody. Cody writes in and says, hello, Noah, I'm going to college for computers. I've graduated from community college with computer specialist and cybersecurity specialist and will be going to a university for information systems. I'm good with hardware. I'm all right with software. Coding, I need more practice. But for networking and server, I've never had much experience with only in college. What are some simple ideas I can make for servers and networking to learn? I've got two Raspberry Pis, one for Cody and two just sitting around. If I'm thinking about it, I might use it as a NAS. I've also got a mini Dell desktop I could make into a server. I want to learn more. If there's an episode about learning networking and service, please let me know. I love your show. I listen to the show while I work as a housekeeper for my hospital, and I'm hoping to get into IT with my hospital or someone else. Thank you, Cody. So a couple things there. First of all, you're on the right path, my friend. Um, working inside of any environment gets your foot into the door, and that leads to other opportunities. So as far as learning about servers, one of the easiest things you can do, uh, and you can do it on just about any computer, is set up a virtual host. And there's two reasons that's, ad that's advantageous. One is it is very much a production-grade uh, solution that you can drop in should you ever come across the need for it. Secondly, it is a tool to help you learn tools. So, for example, once you have a virtual host, now you can start spinning up VMs and trying different servers and seeing what you like. And when you don't like something, or if you make a mistake, you can blow it away or use snapshotting to uh, to save your state before you go back and make a change. So it's 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 a tool to build a tool. You can kind of think of it like a jig. Um, the second thing that you can do, I like your idea of a file server. The first server, it, it, usually when we sit down with businesses or people, and they say, "What should I start with if I wanted to host my own infrastructure?" We typically tell them, "Start with a file server." Reason. Almost everything you do is built off of data. Um, if you're going to have a media transcoding server, you're going to have a media server, you're going to have to have somewhere to store all of those files. So you need a file server. If you're going to, um, everything you do will be built around some sort of data set. And so getting your head wrapped around something like Open Media Vault or TrueNAS is going to allow you to build off of that. Steve, what are your thoughts? How does this guy get into, get some experience with networking or what are some servers that he could set up? So servers is kind of nebulous uh, term, right? And when I was going through this, I was thinking, what does that really mean? But I, I don't really like the idea of a NAS as a learning project for setting up servers, unless you're going to start putting up firewalls and then making sure you know how to open the firewalls to make sure that the connections um, end up flowing properly. I guess I, I just meant say... on his, I meant on his LAN, in, just inside yeah. of his house. Sure, but if the goal is to learn networking and servers, your NAS is is not a really good use case because there's it's it's so simple that and like I said, unless you're actually going to put up firewalls in the way, it doesn't you install Samba, you install NFS or whatever, and you're done. 
especially mm. if you're using TrueNAS or something like that, where you can actually just go and select the thing you want to share and click share. Yeah, and right. backing up the data and making those resources available to the places that... Anyway, what would you set up? So I was thinking something more like a wiki because there's there is a practical element to this where, yeah, you can use this after you're done with it, but it, it most wikis have a database that's associated with it somewhere. And so I would put a wiki with the database on a different computer and have firewalls running on the computer so that you get used to opening up firewall ports and making sure the traffic flows. And if you can, um, put them on different VLANs or subnets, and that will help you learn about networking. And uh, I, I picked up a TP-Link smart switch that's a little five port switch that supports VLANs, and it was 25 bucks. And I thought that was pretty low entry for cost-wise, and it would do exactly what you need it to do. If you're looking at learning networking specifically, there are Cisco, pardon me, Cisco and other companies kind of release a, um, a router software that you can just run that emulates routers and things like that. But ultimately, I, for myself, I would be looking for how do I, how do I get the most knowledge out of the networking side of things? Because that seems to be the root of the question. The most common things that I deal with going on client site is making sure that you can make that connection to the database, that things are flowing properly. It's almost never storage related, which is why I don't think it's um, an ideal project from the standpoint of, I want to learn how to set up a server and I want to learn networking, right? If you want to learn backup processes, sure, there's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't really teach you what I thought the the kind of the crux of this question was. So I think um, we'll just have to agree to disagree on the uh, on the NAS part of it. But if you're looking for software to emulate uh, networking, you might check out GNS3. GNS3 is a fantastic piece of software. It runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And what GNS3 allows you to do is upload the actual firmware from various different networking equipment. So, for example, you can upload the firmware image from a Cisco switch. And then GNS3 will let you just drag and drop that Cisco switch onto a uh, onto a blank map and drag another Cisco switch onto a blank map and then draw a line from one port to another port. And then you can click on e either one of those switches and it will fire up a little console window and run the actual firmware as if you were sitting on a Cisco switch. And so the huge advantage to that is you can, with really no money, build very complex networks and test networking ideas all running on your local computer. Now, the downside to this is you're not, you don't get like the fancy little web UI stuff. So you're doing everything from the command line. So you have to be comfortable with that. But it is a fantastic way to start learning about the processes of, okay, switches are connecting computer endpoints and routers are connecting networks together. Um, so you can check it out, gns3.com. Again, they have it available for Mac, Windows, and Linux, and was a huge help to me um, when I was going through my, my Cisco certifications. Our fourth email comes in from Brett. Brett writes in and says, Noah, a couple episodes back, I remember you asking if someone asking a question used planning center for their church. If you ever want to know any more details, my church has gone all in with planning center. 
We use check-ins on our kiosks on iPads that are tied to a brother label printers for our children's ministry check-ins. We also use the services app for adult production planning and even do the online giving through Planning Center. The church is primarily focused around Macs, besides the core network and servers that I run for them as a volunteer, the network is all Unify equipment. I also have some Linux servers in Docker containers like CFile3CX, Zabbix, SnipeIT, and PyHole. The only non-Linux server that I'm forced to run is a Mac Mini running the Mac server application that does our mobile device management for about 30 iPads. If you know any Linux mobile device management solutions that can manage these iPads, I would love to switch. My research has not turned up any viable options, only online services that are out of our price range. One day, I'll get them more towards Linux on the desktop. But for right now, they're locked in with ProPresenter for song lyrics, and there isn't a Linux application that comes close to matching it. I was also disappointed that Blackmagic Video Switch does not have a Linux client. On Sundays, when I run the soundboard for our online services, I always have my ThinkPad, which currently runs Fedora 34, and I have to show people what a great experience Linux can be. Let me know if you'd like to hear more about any of this setup. There's a lot of great technologies available these days. The marvel of Dante Audio over IP, for example, never ceases to amaze me. Keep up the great work. Your show has inspired me to dig further and further into Linux and open source. Thanks, Brett. So a couple things. I'm always interested in hearing how, uh, how churches are, are doing things. We have a number of churches as clients, and then I have a part-time job. I, I, I both volunteer and am on staff at my local church. Um, to manage their IT infrastructure. I'm always interested in hearing about how other people do that. I have looked at mobile device management a number of different times. For that, re for, for the record, I guess I've also looked at uh, device management for Macs itself, and neither have really turned up anything. So I don't have a good recommendation uh, uh, for you. I would also point out that you talk a little bit about ProPresenter, and there is an open source alternative uh to ProPresenter, the problem is it's terrible and it definitely does not come even close. Uh, and so I would like, it, it, it's called OpenLP and I'll have a link for you in the show notes and you can check it out. But basically, if you need to do anything other than put words up on a screen, um, it's not really going to work for you. And it's certainly, it's, it is not a, the professional tool that ProPresenter is. So um, to the extent that there is, that Anybody hears that and says, I could do something about that, or I know something that that you don't know about, then please write in and let me know. I remember a time when it looked like there was never going to be a, a decent alternative to Wirecast. And then OBS came out, and it wasn't even close. But then a year later, it was closer. A year after that, it was really close. And now I would tell you that there are more people using OBS, and it has surpassed WireGuard in many regards. Um, so it certainly could happen. Um, so if you have mobile management solutions or an alternative to uh, to something like ProPresenter, I'd love to hear it right in, live at asknoahshow.com. Our fifth email comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, Hello, Noah. Thanks for the interview with Stefano from Risk 5 It was an amazing piece. I enjoyed it very much, and it's exciting to hear that the direction things are going with Risk 5 Something I would have liked to have heard from Stefano was his take on the risk, no pun intended, of fragmentation in the processor space. We hear this sort of thing with Linux and how developers tend to shy away from developing Linux due to fragmentation, but we have a common kernel. The sheer number of desktop environments, window managers, means having to develop for so many more potential environments. Similar situation taking place now with the processor market. No more can we expect any server or desktop processor to run a standard x86 ISA. 
We're seeing this already with ARM, and we expect to see even more with RISC-V as it becomes more prevalent in the server, desktop, and IoT markets. Every manufacturer will have to customize their processors to the point their software is written for that processor and will have to be customized to make the best use of that processor's ISA. We're seeing this come to some degree now with Apple M1 processors. Perhaps we could hear more from you, Steve, as well as your audience on this topic. Domo arigato gozaimasu from Japan, Chris. So, Steve, I'll, I'm going to let you start with this one. What are your thoughts? Is I've said over and over and over again since I started this show that competition in the marketplace is always a good thing. Do you think that's true when it comes to processors? I think that it has its place. I thought that this was a very interesting point. I'd, I'd considered this in the past, actually, because once you get into licensing the various bits, and this may or may not actually apply to RISC specifically, but there are several process architectures where you're licensing specific pieces of the architecture and not others. And that makes it very specific for the type of workload that you're you're doing. And when you do that, a monolith kernel like the Linux kernel makes less sense than a very targeted operating system. And so I can see I can see the point here that Chris is making. Um, and it has crossed my mind as well. I I like the competition for ARM specifically because I think if we're going to end up having this situation where we have an architecture that you are basically paying piecemeal for. And as a side note, Intel is also starting to go this way. They're starting to have their latest processors where you're paying to unlock features via software. So the hardware all comes with this in it, but then you have to pay a license fee in order to access the hardware functionality. But back to the point, if we're going to have one closed source thing that's doing this, let's give them some competition, you know, and make, make the open source one or, or at least a secondary one as competition, because if it's already happening, they should at least have some competition so that that, that one group is not cornering the market. I like it. I agree. I, I would say that for the most part, I guess I should start by saying, I don't know enough about software development and specifically ISA uh, specific software development to be able to tell you that, you know, this makes sense or that makes sense. But in general, every time I see competition in the marketplace, what I see is people then competing to try to make one thing better than the other. And I've at least not up until this point when I've interviewed um, people that have different architecture, whether that's the PowerPC people or, or RISC-V, nobody ever tells me, oh, it's a tremendous amount of work to get everything from over here to over there, everything that was written for x86 to get it over to. I'm, I'm, I don't hear that a lot. And it, particularly when it, as it relates to things like ARM, it seems like that's it's a pretty straightforward process and well understood at this point. But uh, your point is well taken, Chris, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to write in. Our sixth email also comes from a Chris, not the same Chris. He, Chris writes in and says, hello, Noah. I know how much of a fan you are of Matrix. And for this reason, I've decided to pose this question to you. I'm considering deploying an instance of Matrix in a self-hosted fashion, likely in a non-federated environment for now, primarily for the use of secure communication with my friends and family. My one must-have requirement is the ability to conduct chat sessions with said friends and family members via a web browser using nothing more than HTTPS as the underlying protocol. 
to be clear, I would be in the web browser and my family and friends could be using the client of their choice to connect into my matrix instance. Without going into too much detail, suffice to say, I work in an environment that only permits HTTPS web browsing and does not permit the installation of any software or browser plugins or extensions. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts to this regard. I'm currently experience, uh, experimenting with Nextcloud Talk to meet this requirement, and I'm running into some challenges with message notifications not working on mobile devices for some unknown reason. This got me thinking about Matrix, given its focus on a com communications platform versus Nextcloud, which is primarily cloud storage and file sharing solution. Thanks so much for a great show. I truly enjoy listening from afar. Best regards, Chris. So, uh, yes, absolutely Matrix works flawlessly in a browser. In fact... I have a matrix account that I have. So I have my, my, my actual matrix account. I secure with a very long passphrase and I don't try to remember it. I use a password manager for that. Um, and then I have everything two factored and all of those kinds of things. However, there are frequently times where I am using a client's computer and I'm, I just use the generic term untrusted machine. I don't know if I trust this machine or not, but I'm going to assume that I don't. Uh, and I need to send a message to someone or I need to receive a message from someone and then I want to destroy that chat. And I have a, mat a second matrix account that I use for just that purpose. And so I go to our, our web URL to load our, our chat client, which loads perfectly in a web browser. In fact, element is literally written um, to be in a web browser and they've just wrapped that in Electron to run on the desktop environment. So it's really more of a web app than it was a native app to begin with. Uh, sign into the matrix instance, open the person I want to chat with and away I go. Um, so you could absolutely do that. The only thing that you're going to run into is you'll have to remember your password. And if you want access to your encrypted messages, then you'll have to remember your pass phrase. Um, and as long as you can do those two things, element will absolutely fit that bill in spades. So I would highly encourage you to do that. Please send me a message at kernel Linux colon Linux delta.com when you get your matrix server up and running. Our seventh email comes in from Matt. Matt writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I'm writing to ask for your recommendation for a ticketing or IT service management system. Noah has recommended OS Ticket in the past, but my company needs the system to have integrated asset management and inventory module, which currently is unavailable in OS Ticket. We work in an operations technology environment, unlike a typical IT department that may have end users opening support tickets we have relatively few users, but thousands of network connected devices that we need to maintain and keep track of. These include security cameras, radios, network switches, routers, and process controllers. We're a small team, so we're looking for a system that's easy to use and can be maintained without a lot of administrative overhead. We're open to both self-hosted and cloud-based solutions. Thanks for making such an informative show. I've been listening since episode one, Matt. Um, so Steve, I'm going to open this one up to you again. I, again, I'm a big fan of OS ticket. I don't know of any solutions that natively integrate for asset management. W what are your thoughts? Did we lose her? Maybe we lost Steve. Uh, nope. Steve just oh. muted himself because, oh, no worries. <laughs> because working from home, um, <laughs> uh, I don't have a ton of experience with the open source side of things on this regard, because all of my clients, including Red Hat, we don't use open source software to do this. So um, that is an indication to me that at least at scale, there isn't anything that's particularly um, well received by by corporations. Good. That doesn't There's mean nothing that good. small, medium. Yeah. 
It doesn't mean that small, medium businesses uh, don't have anything that suits their needs. It just means that the clients at my scale are not um, satisfied with the options. Because believe me, I have some clients, they would go open source just because it's cheaper or free, not because of ide- like any kind of ideology. So if there was anything that could get them off of, say, ServiceNow, they would go. There is one piece of software um, I, I've not personally used it, but one of the guys that works on my field team, one of my field techs, uh, used to work for a university and they used a piece of software that did all of the tracking. And he has said numerous times how incredibly awesome it was, the amount of information that came out of that software. So I've reached out to him. So I'll see if I can get the name. If I have by the end of the show, I'll throw it in the show notes. If not, we'll try and follow up next week. But thanks for the question, and we'll also open that up to the community. So if you have an idea for Matt, then write in live at asknoahshow.com. Let us know what your IT management system is that could potentially tie into some sort of an inventory control. Our pick of the week this week is Moitrix, a beautiful cross-platform open source download manager. Moitrix is a no-nonsense download manager that provides a clean look out of the box. It's free, it's open source, and you can use it on Linux, Mac, and windows so this is pretty cool it has an easy to use interface it allows you to do things like BitTorrent, automatic tracker list updates it will negotiate upnp and nat port mapping for you um, your it will allow you to do parallel download tasks you can support uh, get support for up to 64 threads in a single task the ability to set a speed limit one of the things that i thought was pretty cool and i would not really considered it before for years when i need something i just Open, I just open my terminal and I double W get whatever the file is that I want to download off the internet. But if you wanted some sort of GUI way to do that, how would you do that? How would you go and say, I have a file. I know the, the resource locator for it. I have a URL for that file, but I want to download the file and I can't, you know, if it's a movie, it just starts playing in the browser. How do I right click? And if it doesn't allow me to save it, how, how do I pull that off? Um, a download manager is a great way to do that. And here's an open source one that will do everything from uh, from URLs that are on the internet out to things that ha- that are seated with, uh, with BitTorrent and stuff. Um, so make sure to check it out. Again, it's called Moitrix. You can learn more at uh, itsfoss.com slash Moitrix. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's available via app image. You can also find it in Flatpak or the Snap Store. Our gadget of the week this week is the Elcro Raspberry Pi touchscreen 5-inch monitor. So my goal was to go around my house and put up little mini control surfaces that I could use for A, keeping an eye on matrix notifications, and then B, controlling primarily Volumio slash Home Assistant. And I wanted to do that with something that I could cycle out. If I built everything around Raspberry Pis, and then the ras- and I decide I want to use a NUC instead of a Raspberry Pi, or I want to have a central computer downstairs or something like that, um, I kind of lose all of my options. So the thing I like about the Elcro Raspberry Pi, one, it's a five-inch display. Great thing about that, if you look at most thermostats and other smart devices that mount in your house, they're around that four to five-inch screen size. So there's a check. Kind of matches the aesthetic look and overall design appearance of other devices in its category. Second of all, it's powered over USB, which means it can draw power from almost any device I would be feeding the video signal to from it. Additionally, it has an HDMI connector is how it's getting its video signal. So 
when using something like the Raspberry Pi, I can just plug in the USB cable or the HDMI cable. It doesn't require me to attach uh, to the hat like you would on some Raspberry Pi displays. If I ever want to swap that out and just use my, my laptop, for example, I could absolutely use it as an external and have tried it. External display for my laptop uh, or replace any device that is capable of outputting an HDMI signal. And then that USB cable not only provides power, but it also acts as a touchscreen, so you have some control, you have a control surface back to the machine. So again, it's the Elecroy uh, Raspberry Pi touchscreen monitor. It's available on Amazon. Less than 100 bucks. We'll have a link for you in the show note. Again, podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, Element One, a new service from Matrix folks to bridge WhatsApp, Signal, and Telegram is now available. You can learn more at element.io slash element dash one. Now, I have to say, I've been on Matrix for a long time, and we moved all of AltaSpeed over, then we moved all of Ask Noah Show community stuff over, and it's been a Pretty fantastic experience from top to bottom. But one of the things that nobody really talks a whole lot about that I think is one of the, perhaps one of the best features of the matrix infrastructure is bridging. The fact that you can bridge from one service to the other. And so if you have people that are on Telegram and Signal and WhatsApp and Facebook and all of the places, it becomes very difficult to try to convince all of those people to get off their chosen platform to come onto yours. At the same time, if there's one thing people hate, it's change. And so if I'm balancing all of those things around and over here in the work category, I want secure encrypted self-hosted communication because that's what an IT company that runs, that promotes open source free, open source secure self-hosted technology would do. And then over here in the other category, I have the community, which every time we every time we make a change, we lose people because there's oh, I don't want to make that change again. So we want to pick something that's going to be around for a long time, that's going to be have a wide variety of clients to suit everyone's individual needs and is going to allow them to explore and tweak and modify to their liking. Oh, by the way, it should also be accessible on the Web because we want people to be able to just go to a website and be able to participate and we need it to remain anonymous. And now we need to have all of the all of that talk to the things, the people that we can't reach, the people that aren't going to change, the people that are comfortable where they're at. How do what solution fits all of that? And that's where Matrix comes in. Up until now, your only choice if you wanted to take advantage of bridging was to host your own server and run the bridges. And as Steve would love to tell you, it is it can be a colossal disaster. I tried running a number of my own bridges. I had everything from the bridges would crash constantly and I just couldn't keep them up at all to some of them I could keep up, but then the server resources got to be extreme and so it caused the experience on the server to not be great. I can't imagine if you tried to bridge all of the things on a server and still have a great experience. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying I'm not smart enough to do it. Um, and so that's where Element One comes in. Element One for five dollars a month, they will host they will host a Synapse server, a Matrix server, as well as the bridges for you. Now, previously in their payment plans, if you were if you used bridging as part of their EMS subscription plan, they charged you either per chat or per bridge. This is five dollars a month, and that covers all of the bridges. Right now, it's WhatsApp, Signal, and Telegram. 
which are the three most popular uh, messaging application. I am begging you. I am begging you, Element people, please add Facebook to this. Facebook Messenger is one of the platforms that I absolute hardcore refuse to uh, to do. I will not put Messenger on any of my devices. I will not respond uh, to Messenger requests because I just don't want to use that platform. I would love to not be cut off from all of the people that insist on using that platform. And we have the tool. The bridge exists. I just need you to host it because it never works for me. And so this is I think this is really fantastic. One of the things that I think is important to understand is that this is not a dedicated instance. When you sign up for an EMS plan, you're getting your own matrix server. They set it up for you. They host it for you. They maintain it for you. They upgrade it for you. All of the things. But that's your own instance. You're the only users on that instance. In this case, Element uh, 1 is a dedicated home server specifically set up for this service, Element 1 Bridging. And so you get an account on the Element 1 home server. It is not a dedicated personal home server. It's just a, it's an account on 1.ems.host, a home server that they set up specifically for hosting Element 1. And so uh, the takeaways here are, I think bridging is a, is a is a key component to matrix adoption and bridging as a service is only going to become more popular so ems is doing it now there's also some people that have been working for matrix as well as others that have started their own company called beeper you can learn more at beeper.com and they are doing all the bridges and there it's a little bit more expensive it's ten dollars a month it's invite only um and you have to, so far as i understand it i think you have to use their app uh for it to work um, but this is, it was absolutely fantastic. So I signed up for it. I think it came out, it wasn't last week, the week before. And I signed up for my Element 1 account. I bridged a number of my accounts. So I'm back on Telegram now via Matrix. Um, and it has been, has just been outstanding. I, I don't have enough good things to say about it. The only downside is because they're using, uh, because they're using OAuth um, central identity, it requires you to, click on a little link and then it opens back up with your element client to authenticate. And there is no multi-account support in elements. So I use the TACTAC profile argument to specify a new profile. Um, and I would like to have a separate profile for my element one account. I can't do that and sign back in because I can't get past the little, Hey, you click on this thing, sign in with your OAuth and then it tries to tries to come back and talk back to that client and it can't ever talk to it. So I don't know how to tell it, Hey, use this specific profile, uh, version of element. Um, by the way, the open source application, the guy, my field tech just got back to me. The, the, that open source application inventory is called OCS inventory. So I'll have a link for you in, uh, in the show notes, but yeah, element one, check it out. Element.io slash element dash one. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. If you'd like to check that out, highly encourage you to support those guys. And, um, uh, and get back on some platforms you wouldn't already be on. Fedora 35 is now upon us. Fedora Workstation focuses on the desktop in particular. It's geared towards software developers who want a quote-unquote just works Linux operating experience. So this release features GNOME 41. GNOME 41 has a number of improvements with power management. They've also overhauled the GNOME software store to make it easier to browse and discover applications. And it introduces Connections, a new client for VNC and RDP-based remote desktops. Now, they made some improvements in the Fedora Cloud version for this release. Since many cloud providers are now supporting UEFI boot, cloud images have both hybrid boot support 
um, which unify both legacy and UEFI boot modes following the change to ButterFS on Fedora, I believe it was 34, 33. Uh, Fedora Cloud 35 is now using ButterFS. They've also improved uh, the Pipewire support. In 34, Pipewire came, became the the uh, default for audio. Now they're using WirePlumber Session Manager. WirePlumber allows a more customized approach to policies and rules for both audio and video routing. Um, so that's exciting. They produce more than just the additions. They also have Fedora Spins. Um, and there's a variety of audiences and use cases that 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 spins cover, um, one of which is CompNeuro, which is tools specifically designed for computational neuroscience and desktop environments like Fedora LXQT, which provides a lightweight desktop environment. And new with Fedora Linux 35 is Fedora Kinanite. And this is a reprovisionable desktop featuring the KDE Plasma desktop. And as a KDE fan, I'm definitely giving that a shot. Of course, they have support for alternative architectures, ARM, AA Arch 64 Power and S390X. Steve, are you on Fedora 35 yet? I am not. Shame on me. Um, part of that is because I have not dug out my test laptop from my pile in the back after moving. So it kind of got put down the list. I think it's still Fedora 33 on there. Okay. Well. Fantastic. Well, let me know what you think. I will be upgrading my Fedora box here in a week or so, and I'll let you know what I think. Supply chain attacks. This is when you're attacking the process used to deliver something rather than targeting or rather than targeting the target directly. And a new supply chain attack has been discovered. Researchers with the University of Cambridge discovered a bug that affects basically everything. Uh, computer code compilers that are used for software development. So Unicode, which allows computers to exchange information regardless of the language being used, um, has a weakness. And the weakness is in Unicode's bidirectional or BIDI algorithm, which is essentially a process for changing the order in which you read things. So for example, Arabic, which is read right to left, and English, which is read left to right. So computer systems have to have a deterministic way of resolving uh, the conflicting directionality in texts. And this is where the BIDI override comes in, which can make it easier uh, to for computers to interpret left to right or right to left and vice versa. Most programming languages let you put these BIDI overrides in the comment and strings. And this is a bad thing because most programming languages will allow comments uh, within which all text, including the control characters, is ignored by compilers and interpreters. It's also bad because most programming languages allow string literals that contain arbitrary characters, including control characters. And so this supply chain attack in some ways is worse because developers can't even see it in some of the most popular code editors. Um, and you can use them in source code that can, if a human is reviewing the source code, they might look and it looks fine, but actually it does something particularly nasty. Now, Red Hat has come out with a shell line on how you can check your code base. They have that available at access.redhat.com. We'll have the link for you in the show notes. Fedora already has a pull request to automatically check all PRs in their repos. And of course, the original uh, Volan site will have link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But this is this is kind of crazy that this kind of stuff is out there. It exists, and it's particularly egregious when you accept code from random people on the internet, and they could be trying to hide something malicious, and there's not an easy way 
to scan for it. So make sure to check out the show notes, read more about it. Um, we just try and get your feet wet here, and then we give you the resources to learn more. The music in our ears means we're out of time. We close down the hour. We invite you to follow us on Twitter. He's at Linux Ovens. I'm at Colonel Linux. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. This show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central over at AskNoahShow.com. We publish the, the show notes at podcast show.com there you'll get all the articles and references we used to create the show we'll be back next tuesday 6 p.m central asknoahshow.com have a good week mm-hmm.